This last science show of the year celebrates a sesquicentenary, 150 years since they decided to build the telegraph from Adelaide to Darwin. It changed our history forever. On the day itself, November 15th, we were gathered at the Parliament House of South Australia in the very room where the decision was made to go ahead. And we heard from the Premier, Peter Malinowskis, what it meant then and what innovation means now. In 1872, the instigator was a true STEM original, Charles Todd. He seemed to take on all scientific endeavours, and in this science show, Sharon Carlton, our intrepid biographer, tells his story and what it meant for this wide brown land and how it changed so very quickly. Sharon. The attachment to Charles Todd's story for me is a personal one. In some way parallels, I guess, the way that Todd made a decision to come out to Australia. Mac Benoy, who for the past 17 years has been with the Bureau of Meteorology in South Australia, leading a citizen science team hell-bent on rescuing old weather records. Mac Benoy and Charles Todd were both 29 years old when they left their respective homelands. I was working in Toronto in the new discipline of computing, and I was working at probably one of the largest IT groups in Canada, the Steel Company of Canada, and really, when you're sitting in North America, you look at Australia and you look at somewhere that couldn't be further away from European civilization. So when we migrated in 76 to get away from winter, we arrived in Adelaide expecting to find basically a backwater. And it wasn't long before I began to realize that there was something magic happening in Adelaide, which I just never saw in Canada. After a biblical seven years, we made our first return to Toronto. It wasn't long before I was telling them what we were doing in South Australia that they weren't doing in Canada. Now, I'd heard of Todd of the Overland Telegraph as a young student in grade school in Montreal. What I've found with Todd was that he had left England at the centre of technological ferment at Cambridge and at Greenwich. I'd left the technological ferment of North America to come to this dusty town in the middle of nowhere. We both had very useful careers in a town where we found that the opportunities to be entrepreneurial were very rich. Mac Benoy learned about Charles Todd, as he said, in school in Canada. Many in Australia, young and old alike, have yet to discover him. Julian Todd, Sir Charles's great-great-grandson. Very few of our youngsters are learning at school the enormous achievements of our early scientists. Sir Charles is one of many. He was a physicist, an astronomer, he's a meteorologist. He first wrote a paper about the El Nino effect. Every repeater station was a meteorological station. And of course, today we're relying on the records that Sir Charles Todd put together to better understand climate change. Back in the 1900s and early to mid 1800s, scientists typically didn't just practice in one area of science, they practiced in several areas of science, especially if they were scientists who were actually applying it to practical problems. When you looked at all the various areas that Todd was involved in, if you're working in weather, you need to be able to do observations. And to do observations, you needed very precise instruments. So there's the engineering side of it. And if you're going to bring that data together to produce a map of the weather at the time, you need to be concerned that all of the data comes in at the same time. So there's the need to be able to understand and control how time works. You need to know exactly where the observations came from, and that involves surveying. 
to bring all of this together, you need the communications, which is telegraphy. Charles Todd was a quintessential man of STEM, of science, technology, engineering and maths. But he also liked poetry. One of his many lasting legacies was the Overland Telegraph from Adelaide to Darwin, completed in 1872. Tom Standage is author of the book The Victorian Internet. I like to draw this analogy between the telegraph of the 19th century and the internet today. You can't get any quicker than instant. And the point at which instant communication over long distances first happened was actually in the 19th century. A young Englishman, Charles Todd, passionate about astronomy and fascinated by science in general, came to Australia in the mid-1800s. At that time, Louis Pasteur's work on microorganisms had just begun to be used to preserve food. Lewis Carroll was still writing Alice in Wonderland, and the first discovery of Neanderthal fossils was causing great astonishment. Australia's population was less than half a million. So what attracted Todd to the colonial outpost of Adelaide? His first job as a 15-year-old was to be an astronomical computer at Greenwich, at the Royal Observatory. He was extraordinary in that he could actually add up three columns of numbers simultaneously. So, of course, a computer then was someone who added up, not what we think of a computer today. Co correct, correct. And he was invited to become an assistant astronomer at the Cambridge Observatory. Sir George Airy, who was the then head and astronomer royal of the Greenwich Observatory, invited him to consider becoming postmaster general and head of telegraphs for the South Australian colony. But why would he have been attracted in coming to Adelaide, which was really the ends of the world? South Australia was the only state that didn't start as a penal colony. And indeed, it started with something called a scientific experiment in colonial development, and that was the Wakefield Plan. The notion was that people would pay, say, a fee of £10 to come out. When they landed, they were given 40 acres in the country to grow crops and so forth, and they'd have a one-acre plot somewhere in Adelaide. And the whole idea was that the money that was gained, a certain percentage of it would be used to set up the infrastructure and another percentage would be used to attract more migrants. So this concept of sort of a scientific establishment of a colony must have been attractive to a person like Todd. So he chose the option of leaving England and being the only scientist on the patch in coming to a place like South Australia where science was king Within five years of his arrival, Charles Todd determined that Australia would be part of one of the most sensational achievements of the 19th century. It was the era when modern communication was starting to snake its way from country to country in the form of a wire which would connect the world. The Science Show's own special correspondent, renowned physicist Paul Davies, takes up the story. In 1872, just a few years after the first European crossing of Australia, this far-flung outpost of the British Empire became linked all the way to London by a continuous wire stretching right around the world, traversing deserts and jungles and snaking beneath vast stretches of ocean. 
It was the scientific and technical marvel of its age, and it transformed Australian society, business and politics as profoundly in its own way as the internet revolution of today. Wiring up the world represented the culmination of a long history of electrical signalling. As Tom Standage discovered, the subject had an unusual origin. The origins of telegraphy, I like to think, go back to an experiment that was done in 1746 with a bunch of monks. And what they did was they all stood in a row about half a mile long and they all had bits of wire linking them together. And then the Abbe Nolle connected a primitive kind of battery called a Leyden jar to one end of the chain of monks. And this gave all of them a powerful electric shock, at which point they all would have said, ow. And this all sounds very silly, but is in fact extremely important because firstly, they all said ow right the way along the line, which showed that you were sending a signal right the way along that line. And secondly, they all said ow at the same time. And that meant you were sending the signal very, very quickly over a long distance. So if you could figure out how to move on from electrocuted monks onto a sort of more repeatable system, then you might have the basis of a communications device, which would enable you to send long messages very quickly over long distances. When Napoleon's army began moving around Europe, there was urgent need for a new communication system, preferably one that used wires so as to be less conspicuous and reach places that were not limited to line of sight. All sorts of weird and wonderful contraptions were proposed. Also, various schemes for encoding the information were tried. The most successful code was the simplest, and it still bears the name of its American inventor, Samuel Morse. The nice thing about Morse's approach was that you only needed one wire. So the complexity was taken out of the actual technology and put into the hands of the operator. You needed to learn the Morse code and you needed to be able to uh, both send it and receive it. Once the commercial potential was appreciated, the overland telegraph caught on rapidly. Imperial nations, such as Britain, began exploring ways to stretch the wires across, or rather beneath, the seas to link together their distant colonies. A crucial technical breakthrough came with the discovery of gutta percha, a latex-like substance from Malaya that had the right insulating properties. Mary Godwin is the director of the Porthcurno Telegraph Museum, the communications hub near Land's End, where the original submarine cables came ashore. The first trans-channel cable, 1850, from David to Calais, was very, very experimental. It was really just a copper wire with some gutta-percha insulation, and it didn't have enough substance to lie at the bottom of the ocean. The cable floated... There's also the apocryphal story that a piece of it was cut off by a French fisherman. And of course, that meant it didn't work. The story of the first transatlantic cable is all epic in its own right. It was built by a, a chap called Cyrus Field. And the reason no one had really tried to do it before was that the more you knew about telegraphy, the less likely you were to try something this daft. And he had the advantage that he knew nothing about telegraphy whatsoever. He just thought it would be a great idea. Amazingly, he got investors to back his scheme. And the cable actually worked after a fashion. The earliest transatlantic telegraphy, although quicker than steamship, was hardly a snappy conversation. Attempts to speed up the data rate by increasing the voltage turned out to be disastrous, as any physics student would now predict. Unfortunately, the cable itself uh, stopped working almost immediately because the chief engineer of the project really didn't know any electrical theory. And he thought the best way to send messages over long distances was to use huge voltages. And this destroyed the cable. So they then had to uh, raise more money and the American Civil War intervened as well. So the only reason that the second and third transatlantic cables could be laid by a single ship was that the biggest ship in the world had been built and no one really knew what to do with it. And that was the Great Eastern. You could fit an entire ocean's worth of cable onto it and it would then chunder across the sea and, and lay it. 
Let's follow the route of one of the earliest cables that threaded its way towards the most distant outposts of the British Empire. This is how an Australian newspaper, the Victorian Argus, described the route. Thus the long line we've been following across the wreck-strewn bottom of the Bay of Biscay, in the blue depths of the Mediterranean, down in the heated waters of the Red Sea, across the broad stretch of the Arabian Sea, through central India, again plunging into the sea in the Bay of Bengal, treading the channels of the Straits of Malacca, crossing through the rich tropical scenery and amidst the towering volcanoes of Java, and then once more diving down into the coral depths of the ocean, finally makes its landing on the low mangrove-covered shores of North Australia. But the story of that final link in the chain began some years earlier, in Cambridge, and a blossoming romance between a British astronomer and a plucky young lady. Alice Thompson, who works appropriately enough for the Telegraph newspaper in London, is their direct descendant. My great-great-grandfather was someone called Charles Todd, who came from Greenwich and whose father was a publican and didn't really have much money, but went to work in the Royal Observatory. And he was very good with figures. Anyway, he managed to wangle his way out to Australia. He met Alice when he was very young, but she was even younger. She was only 12 and she was hiding behind the sofa when he came to see her parents. And he said to her parents, I'm going out to Australia, but I don't know what to do because I haven't got a wife. And she is meant to have jumped up from behind the sofa and said, I will come with you, Mr. Todd. And some years later, she did. Alice was still only 18 when she and her new husband arrived in Adelaide, it seemed to Charles, incredibly cut off. When he got to South Australia, I think he just realised how far away it was from Britain. So all your news was six months late. If a king died or queen died or anything really happened in Europe, you didn't know about it until six months later. And I think in the end, that drove him to try and get Australia linked to the rest of the world. It needed the telegraph. But that was not going to be easy to achieve, particularly for someone based in Adelaide, separated from Darwin, the cable's likely point of landfall, by two and a half thousand miles of harsh, uncharted wilderness. Laurie Wallace, president of the South Australian Morscadian Society, describes Todd's vision. He would like to have seen the cables that were progressively coming down across Asia to be brought into Australia. And he thought, why not at Port Darwin? Why not at Palmerston, as it was then called, and then bring the line down through to Adelaide, and then we could radiate out to Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane with the messages. So Adelaide would be the key nerve centre for communications with the world. He wanted this to happen, but so did New South Wales, so did Queensland. Speaking to the government, he said, what if I can build the line from Adelaide to Darwin we can do it in two years, and they would do it at their cost. This was early in 1870. They accepted it. A bill was passed in Parliament in Adelaide in June 1870, and work started on the line later that year. Charles Todd was ready to go. I think what was extraordinary about the idea to build a telegraph system across Australia was the fact that Australia hadn't really been crossed then. It had only been crossed once or twice. So no one really knew what the interior was like. They didn't know still if there was a big lake there. They didn't know how hilly it was. They assumed there'd be quite a lot of trees so that they could make telegraph poles as they went along. They didn't realise that they'd have to import everything into the interior. It was just an extraordinarily bold concept. And they also said they'd do it in a very short period of time. By anyone's standards, the logistics of such an undertaking were daunting. Canberra-based historian Anne Moyle. 
Todd divided the undertaking into three sections. The southern section, about 600 miles north of Adelaide, a northern section, and they had to send 80 men and many horses and many bullocks and all the equipment up by ship to Darwin so that it could begin at the Roper River. But then they had this highly challenging central section and only one portion of that had been explored. And again, the reason that South Australia was able to take on this project, which was very competitive, bids from Queensland trying to get the overland telegraph connection, they could do it because in 1860 to 62, John McDowell Stewart, the great explorer, had managed to get to the centre and then he turned left to go to the Mary River in Western Australia. So he showed that you could make a track through Australia. But there was a large section in the central where nobody had been. So this was a tremendously challenging section. So to link these three sections, to have all your men materials and all the poles they brought in from Germany, the iron poles to use where there was no timber, and galvanised wire to put up in itself was an undertaking could never be done today. It could be done today, but thankfully we wouldn't need to do it with horses and camels. Luke Coleman works at the international telecommunications company Vocus, which operates a 30,000-kilometre fibre network around Australia and has constructed three submarine cables over the past decade. Ironically, modern submarine cables face similar problems to those experienced by the undersea cable which connected with Todd's overland telegraph. The biggest risk to cables today tends to be from ship anchors, although fishing and, and fishing nets can also cut through these cables. So there was an incident in late 2021 where off the coast of Perth, a ship dropped its anchor in a storm and that anchor managed to cut through three cables off the coast of Perth. Now, even though that was in what's called a cable protection zone, these things can still happen. Now, normally a break like that could take a number of months to be fixed, to get a ship into the area, to lift the cable up to the surface of the ocean, to splice the cable back together. Thankfully, in this case, there was a ship very close by and it was done in less than two weeks. But that was a very, very short period of time. Normally, it takes a lot longer than that. So yes, cables can still be broken today and it does happen. Another risk to cables, particularly in some parts of the Pacific, is from unexploded ordnance from World War II. One cable that was laid from Australia was being checked by a submersible camera and was found to have been laid directly on top of a bomb from World War II, which hadn't been exploded. And thankfully, the cable managed to just slide off the side and land in the sand. But there are risks that you might never consider when it comes to laying a submarine cable. What happened to the bomb? The bomb is still laying there on the floor of the ocean like a lot of unexploded ordnance from the Second World War. Tell me, how has technology changed the undersea cables and the overland cables? Where have we gone in the last 150 years? The biggest technological development since the deployment of the overland telegraph is the transition from copper cables to fibre optic 
technology. So copper cables carry telephone signals as pulses of electricity. Fibre optic cables use wavelengths of light. They're capable of carrying vastly higher amounts of data at much faster speeds. So the Overland Telegraph was celebrated for reducing the amount of time it took to get a signal from London to Sydney from months down to just hours. Today we measure that time in milliseconds. So it's dramatically faster and much, much higher amounts of data. So the Overland Telegraph would carry Morse code in dots and dashes. Today, we measure it in terabits per second of data. So a submarine cable laid today would carry typically 40 terabits per second of data. Now, to try to put that in perspective, a Blu-ray disc, which you might watch a movie on today, that's about 1,600 Blu-ray discs every second can be carried by a modern submarine cable. Another difference from the Overland Telegraph is that signals can be carried on fibre optic a much, much longer distance. So on the Overland Telegraph, they would have a repeater about every 200 kilometres where a human being would sit there and listen to the Morse code and physically relay that Morse code to the next repeater. Today, those fibre optic cables can carry a signal for up to a 1,000 kilometres before they need to be repeated. So tell me, what's your latest venture then? There is a cable today which goes from Darwin to Port Hedland, which connects a number of offshore oil and gas facilities. There's also an existing cable from Perth to Singapore called the Australia-Singapore Cable. So this new project will build a link between those two cable systems from Port Hedland to the existing cable in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and that will create a direct link from Darwin through to Singapore. Now, that's exciting because so much data that we see flowing over these international cables today is from one data centre to another. Now, the largest data centre hub in the region is in Singapore, but more and more of that data is flowing through to Australia. So we've already seen that a data centre operator has announced a new data centre being built in Darwin, which is called a hyperscale data centre for handling vast amounts of content and cloud content, video content that then flows through into the rest of Australia. So the more connectivity you have in Australia, the more of this data is being brought in through Southeast Asia and is connecting through to all of the other Australian capital cities via the terrestrial network. The amount of data on these international submarine cables is increasing by about 40% every single year. Let's return to Charles Todd's innovative Victorian copper wire and rejoin Paul Davies and Alice Thompson discussing what made possible the telegraph line from Adelaide to Darwin. When they came across the springs and they realised there was water, they realised that they would be able to then go from one end of the country to the other and they'd found the link through the McDonnell Range. They then sent back a message saying they'd found the springs. They called it Alice after Charles Todd because he was the head of operations and it was obviously a polite thing to do, I think, to name it after his wife. Although I was very sad because she never actually went up to Alice Springs. He spent a lot of his time there and was always going up and down the line and was obsessed by it to the end of his life. In all, 11 telegraph stations were built along the Australian line and operators would take down the messages and repeat them to boost them on their way. They were mad! 
marvellous men, the telegraphists. They were terribly well-dressed, they were dapper, they were well-educated, they were tremendously enterprising. Occasionally one or two of them had to do operations on someone nearby, something terrible had happened to, and have the communication with a doctor back in whatever capital city. And they were the most resourceful men. When they first built the line, it was a mixture of wood and steel poles. Termites very rapidly began to destroy the wooden poles. So over a period of about 10 years, they had to replace all the poles with the steel poles. I have to say, looking at them, they don't look very high. They weren't. In those days, of course, there was no need to provide clearance for trucks and heavy machinery, obviously. And there was also another method in that because the height of the line through the desert was really as such that you could service it from the back of a camel. So it was a smart bit of thinking for 1872, 74. Getting the wire out from Adelaide through the parched terrain to Alice Springs was certainly a fine achievement, but the hardest part of the project lay in the north, between Alice Springs and Darwin. Another team was slogging their way up the Roper River. These men were facing very different conditions, with widespread flooding and thick mud delaying progress. Journal of Robert C. Patterson, Assistant Engineer, Monday 25th December 1871, Christmas Day. It rained very heavily the whole of last night. I left the traps here this morning and went eight miles on horseback to see what the country was like. One creek I crossed during the day was running some inches over the saddle flaps. When I went up to the Roper River, you could see the playing cards that they'd made out of tin that they'd collected when the men were stuck and they'd been flooding and they'd been literally stuck on top of mounds just waiting for the water to get down. And that's when they'd made tin cards and they'd wait for weeks and weeks and weeks just for the water to subside. From the letter book of Charles Todd, my great anxiety now is to dispatch the teams from the Roper with rations and material for the construction parties and to establish an express service to carry messages over the gap between the two ends of the wire. Mr Patterson hoped to get some teams away this week, but heavy rains during the last few days, about ten inches in a fortnight, will, I fear, prevent a start being made till next week. By this stage, the undersea cable from Java had reached Darwin, and the northern tip of Australia was at last connected to the rest of the world. Advertisement in Adelaide newspapers, 24th of June, 1872. Messages will be received at any South Australian Telegraph office for transmission to London and other places in connection with the British Australian Telegraph Company's cables during the ordinary office hours of Tuesday next. These messages will be forwarded from Tennant Creek by Horse Express over the portion of the line at present incomplete and are expected to reach their destination in eight or ten days. On the 22nd of August, 1872, six months late and four times over the original budget, the ends of the Great Overland Line were finally joined in the remote outback 800 miles north of Alice Springs. Telegram from Charles Todd to Chief Secretary. Many thanks for your kind congratulations on the completion of the telegraph, which, as an important link in the electric chain of communication connecting the Australian colony with the mother country and the whole of the civilised and commercial world, will, I trust, redound to the credit of South Australia. Todd's telegraph line was joined by a second, laid in 1941. The news of the bombing of Darwin in February the next year was sent in Morse code down that line.
It was only in the 1970s that those copper lines were replaced by microwave links. As stunning as this work was, it only took a couple of years of Todd's working life to complete the project. Julian Todd. His heart was always astronomy. He arrived in 1855, and by 1860, he'd established the Adelaide Observatory and took a, a series of notes about Jupiter's satellites. He was made a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society in 1864. He contributed valuable observations to the scientific world on the transits of Venus in 1874 and 1882. The work he did from an astronomical perspective involved time, it involved distance, it involved geodetic surveys. By using the telegraphic network, all those elements were interrelated. He was a government electrician. Not only did Sir Charles first light up the square mile of Adelaide, so moving Adelaide away from gas to electricity, but then the arc lamp technology he was using, he took to Melbourne and Sir Charles arranged all the technology so that the first night match for AFL was shown in Melbourne using electricity. We know so little about our own history and that's a story we keep getting just as we did in Canada. We learned all about the British kings and queens and my generation here learned all about the British kings and queens but they learned very little about their own history. The Todd story got lost because it was never told. But also I think we have an issue in Australia in that we're sort of obsessed by one-hit wonders. We talk a lot about Mawson, not necessarily about the hours, days, months and years that Mawson worked in his lab in Adelaide. Really, we know about Mawson. It's the brave work he did in the Antarctica. It was kind of like a boy's own adventure. We talk about Burke and Wills. The Burke and Will story actually is a failure, but we talk about them because they actually died trying to do it. But we don't talk about people like McDowell Stewart, who actually made the first European crossing, where Burke and Wills didn't quite make that work for them. We also talk about the Braggs. I mean, the Braggs are very well known for a range of work, for instance, in physics, but we know them because of the one thing that was X-ray crystallography. We had this sort of one-hit wonder view of our ancestors that will tell their stories if we can identify them with one thing. We're also obsessed, I think, with Australians whose accomplishments were done overseas. The Braggs, they did their work overseas. Mawson, he did his work in the Antarctic. And to me, this is kind of like the scientific version of Australia's famous cultural cringe. We also have a scientific cringe that if you didn't make your mark in science or technology or STEM overseas, well, then you're not worthy of talking about. And of course, really, when you think about it, Todd's work, most of it was done at his desk. So nothing could be more pedestrian than a man working 12-hour days for 40 years, establishing STEM in his colony, but doing it from his desk. It's just not a story that people want to tell. Dare I ask, what does it matter? I think it matters because it talks about the DNA of the society in which you live. Mac Benoy. Rob George is a past president of the International Society of Radiographers. My interest in Charles Todd stems from his relationship with his son-in-law, William Bragg, because if it wasn't for Charles Todd, William Bragg would never have come to Adelaide. Charles Todd obviously came out here as the superintendent of Telegraph and 
government astronomer. And in that position, he was pretty influential and well-connected back into the UK. And it's almost coincidental that when William Bragg finished his studies at the Cavendish Laboratories in Cambridge, he was told by his professor, J.J. Thompson, Nobel laureate, that there was a position coming up in Adelaide in Australia for a professor of physics and mathematics at Adelaide University. There were two people shortlisted. The people making the decision were a bit unsure of who to appoint. And fortunately, Charles Todd happened to be visiting London at the time. Maybe he could have some input into who would be the preferred candidate. So he was contacted and he asked for some details and was told that there was this quiet, very bright young fellow called William Bragg, about age 24. And there was an unnamed, in the records, older fellow in his 40s who had a bit of a problem with alcohol, but was also a physicist. And Charles Todd, having that stage, learned a lot about Adelaide, which is, of course, known as the City of Churches said, good heavens, don't appoint someone with a drinking problem. You should just appoint this young fellow called William Bragg. William duly came to Adelaide and met his future wife the day he arrived, Charles Todd's daughter, Gwendolyn. William and their son, Lawrence, would go on to win the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1915 for their work on X-ray crystallography. And perhaps, just perhaps, that interest started way back in Adelaide after Todd had successfully laid the Overland Telegraph. Charles Todd used to sit and eavesdrop on the messages coming down over that line. And then early in 1896, one of the messages he heard coming down the line was of the discovery of these rays called X-rays by this German physicist called Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen. And he dutifully passed this information on to his son-in-law at the university who said, well, I've got all of this equipment that he's used. We should be able to produce x-rays as well. And so we have this beginning of x-rays in Australia. William Bragg said that Charles had no commanding personality and another commentator said he was a good administrator but had none of the charisma one expects of a great leader. It's ironic to think that Todd was almost a model, modern manager, promoting women and younger workers, courteous and collaborative. But this was seen then as a weakness. It was anathema to some of his contemporaries. Biographer Dennis Cryle thinks this goes some way towards explaining the reluctance of earlier historians to proceed with a more detailed study of his life and personality. If historians have found Todd hard to write about, it's no wonder the general public is so little aware of him. And you're listening to The Science Show on RN on the 150th anniversary of the Overland Telegraph and the work of Sir Charles Todd. It's presented by Sharon Carlton. Despite our computers and space satellites, long-range weather forecasting is not a precise science. Or as Rupert Murdoch explained, I'm not an economist and we all know economists were created to make weather forecasters look good. 
But weather forecasting is a vital tool, no matter how inaccurate, for the fishing industry, construction, farmers, oceanic commerce, aviation and weekend sports. Believe it or not, Todd was one of the last to start issuing weather forecasts. And that was because to be able to do a forecast, you had to know the weather that was coming towards you. Now, right back at the beginning, believe it or not, people believe that weather in Australia typically went from east to west. So in other words, it started in Sydney, hit Melbourne, then Adelaide, then Perth, whereas we all know that it's exactly the opposite. If you watch a weather map on TV, especially in southern Australia, you see the weather coming up through the bite. It might clip Perth, hit Adelaide, move on to Melbourne and then on to New Zealand. Todd was actually the first one to posit the fact that the weather came from the west and went to the east. Interestingly, the only reason people thought it went the other way that we could figure out is because Sydney and Melbourne were more important than Adelaide, and Adelaide was more important than Perth in colonial times. So obviously the big guys got the weather first and the little guys got it later on. It sounds ridiculous, but I've actually got scientific statements to that fact. So Todd was faced with virtually no weather data on which he could place his forecast because A, a lot of it came out of the Southern Ocean and we certainly didn't have any meteorological observations being made in the Southern Ocean. And some of it came from WA and WA was further back in the development scale. And indeed, up until 1878, we didn't even have telegraphic contact. Whereas Todd was feeding data to his compatriots in Victoria and New South Wales, and they could see the weather coming through South Australia and could do forecasts. Anyway, be that as it may, Todd in 1888 finally relented and started issuing weather forecasts. But they're not weather forecasts as we think of them now. It would be a weather forecast saying tomorrow will start out sunny, cloud will appear later in the afternoon, and the temperature might drop by about two or three degrees. Nothing about temperature, nothing about what's going to happen on the second, third or fourth day out. The first next day temperature forecast in Australia wasn't issued until 1956. Charles Todd was quite aware of his competitors ridiculing him, taunting him with accusations of weather forecasting failure, albeit only for that day. But Todd never lost his self-deprecating sense of humour. His daughter Lorna said he delighted in telling the story of how, when sheltering under a King William Street veranda from a sudden deluge, he saw that the man next to him had an umbrella. You're lucky to have that with you, he remarked. Oh no, replied the other. When the days seem uncertain, I always look at the forecast, and if old man Todd says it will be fine, I take an umbrella. It's a good thing Todd was happy to laugh at himself because today, a century and a half later, the data for those weather charts of his are coming in handy, very handy. Todd was an absolute stickler for doing observations and doing them accurately and recording them. And he was universally known interstate and overseas for his capacity to gather the data and put it together. And he would actually issue annual reports of some hundreds of pages with data and explanations of the weather of the past year. And it's those data that we are working with as part of the Volunteer Citizen Science Program that we're running. 
We've digitized upwards of 600,000 data points and sent it to international data banks of meteorological information. And that's available for researchers to examine and to use in their modeling. The importance of the data is in climate change analysis. So the further back you can take the climate record, the further back you can place the benchmark. So Todd's data is incredibly important globally because it's measuring weather typically in South Australia, especially in the winter, that comes out of the Southern Ocean. And the Southern Ocean is a major climate driver for the rest of the world. Now that data has also been used, for instance, at the University of Melbourne to determine long-term temperature records. And I won't get into the details on that one. But using Todd's data, we're actually able to recalibrate data around the world on any long-term weather site to refine the data they have and to get to a more exact view of what is happening to temperature changes over the last 150, 200 years. And also the ANU has used the data to research snow events in South Australia. And they're able to prove using Todd's data that we're getting markedly fewer snow events in South Australia than where we were getting in the 19th century. How was Todd collecting this data? He set up a very rigorous observation system which involved postmasters, it involved telegraphists, it involved lighthouse keepers, and it involved a few professional people whose job was meteorology to record this. So this data is recorded in quite a few different journals, and a lot of the data that we've been recording is from the lighthouses, because those lighthouses sit at crucial points along the southern coast, grabbing the data coming out of the southern ocean as it begins to hit South Australia. But believe you me, Todd was a very affable and likable individual, but if you got the data wrong or did the observations incorrectly, he'd be down on you like a ton of bricks. He didn't have any use for that data, but he could see that into the future, this data was going to be important to understand how weather worked out of the Southern Ocean and across the Australian continent. And that's the legacy he's left us. We've digitized those 600,000 points. That's less than one half of 1% of the data that's available to us if we just had the manpower to digitize it all. What we're doing is taking that data and feeding it into modern day weather reconstructions, for want of a better word. And these are very valuable in that we can push back through time, our understanding and coverage of weather all over the globe, right throughout the depth of the atmosphere. Professor Rob Allen is the Scientific Manager at the Met Office in Exeter in the UK and originally from Adelaide. We can use it for climate change or to study climate variability or climate itself, just at the long-term averages. What we do is we assimilate one of the variables that Todd had on his charts, which was the surface pressure observations. And we have them not just from Todd, but from all over the world, both from land stations and from ships. And my colleagues that work on these weather reconstructions, they take a modern weather forecast model, the sort of model that gives you your forecast out to next day or several days that you see in the, on the television, newspapers, etc. They put that effectively back in time, if you like, at a point back in time where they have data and they run the model with the data of the time. Then at a time step of the next three hours, they look at what that produces and then they add in the actual observations and sort of iterate forward through time. And this actually reconstructs the weather just using the synoptic pressure and the monthly sea surface temperature and sea ice from other sources to reconstruct the four-dimensional weather, if you like, through space and time. They produce not just one realisation all over the world 
using this technique. They use 80 realizations. They start the model at slightly different times at the beginning, and this gives us an ensemble of realizations, if you like. If a large number converge, then you feel more confident that you're actually approaching reality. Charles Todd has been called many things, most of them polite. Government electrician, the old Greenwich astronomer, weather prophet, communication czar, time lord, which we'll come to, and pun master general. He delighted in puns. He was a great tea drinker, and he'd often say that if you took the tea out of Todd, he'd be odd. To be an astronomer in Charles Todd's day was to be a timekeeper. In the Victorian era, time was determined by the passage of the stars. Using mathematics, an astronomer could predict the exact time a star would pass a certain point in the sky. Using a transit telescope, this was observed as the star passed across a hairline in the eyepiece, at which moment a master clock was set. The master clock was then used to set other master clocks. Later, this was automated using a telegraph signal. The idea of individual people carrying time around with them and having it available accurately was only starting to become a thing. Physics professor at Union College, Schenectady, New York, and author of A Brief History of Timekeeping, Chad Orzel. Most people, if they needed to know what time it is, you know, would refer to a public clock, like a church or uh, an observatory, something like that. The 12s and 24s and 60s that show up in the definitions of time are actually relics that go all the way back to the Babylonians. The Babylonian arithmetic used a base of 60. And so they use that as sort of a, a fundamental number, counting things in units of 60s. They are the first ones who were keeping really careful records of astronomy and the times and positions of stars. And so all of their data are recorded in this system with things divided into multiples of 60. And everybody since for the last 3,000 years has just been cribbing off the Babylonians. There's an interesting process that happens through the history of timekeeping where people start with something and you're going to say, okay, a day is the full 24 hours the sun to the sun coming back to the same position in the sky. You can use that as a basis for time, and that's how people initially set up the seconds. And then, of course, you find that, well, you know, hours of daylight obviously vary quite a lot over the course of a year. But as you get better and better timekeepers, it becomes apparent that the length of a day actually changes over time. This happens because largely due to the moon, the same gravitational distortion that causes the tides, the moon pulling on the Earth, that actually acts to, over time, gradually slow the rotation of the Earth. And that's compensated for by the moon moving slightly farther away from the Earth. We've measured this incredibly well now, thanks to some mirrors that are left on the surface of the moon by the Apollo missions. We can bounce lasers off it and measure the distance to incredible precision. So the rotation of the Earth is gradually slowing over time. A day in the 20th century is actually slightly longer than a day in the early 19th century or back in the 18th century. It's not a very big difference. It's tens of milliseconds difference in the length of a day. But that's how precise timekeeping has become over the last 150 years. 
Before he came to Australia, when Charles Todd was still working at the Greenwich and Cambridge observatories in the UK, the British Rail Network was expanding and the need for timetables and signalling systems meant solar time was no longer efficient. Different times in different regions was not conducive to running trains efficiently. In fact, it was downright dangerous. Wrong times and trains would collide. A standardised time, later Greenwich Mean Time, was necessary. The electric telegraph transmitted information, including about time, almost instantaneously. This early knowledge and interest served Todd well in Adelaide. Historian Graham Davison is reading from his book, The Unforgiving Minute, How Australia Learned to Tell the Time. Sunday the 1st of February 1895 was a busy night for Australian clockmakers and a bewildering one for many citizens. As the midnight hour struck, clocks all over New South Wales were suddenly stopped, their hands frozen as time itself seemingly stood still. Five full minutes passed before Sydney's post office clock again resumed its steady ticking. In Adelaide, the clock stopped even longer, 14 minutes and 20 seconds, causing some folk to wonder which day, Sunday or Monday, should be credited with any births or deaths occurring during the interval. The minutes mysteriously gained by Sydney and Adelaide came at the expense of their southern neighbours, Melbourne and Hobart. At 20 minutes to 12, the hands of Melbourne's post office clock swept forward to midnight and the clock began to chime the hour. Well, ever since the 1850s, there's been an increased process of coordination within the colonies and then across the colonies. People's activity became more and more linked, particularly to the schedules that were laid down by the telegraph and, and the railway. It was more and more necessary to actually have standardised time that would enable people in Sydney, say, or Melbourne, to coordinate their activities with each other or even within the colonies themselves because, of course, for a long while, people had kept their own local time. In Broken Hill, for example, the railways, which were connected to New South Wales, kept New South Wales time. The mines, which were much more connected to Adelaide, kept Adelaide time. A number of other activities kept local time. It was really necessary to try and begin to get a kind of coordination between activities as the colonies themselves began to move really closer and closer towards being a unified or federated nation. Did other countries have this sort of standardised time already? Yes, Australia in some ways, although it was a progressive country in many ways, was a bit backward in adopting standard time. The Americans had already had a form of standard time from about the 1850s or 60s and a much more elaborated one from about the 1880s. And Canada, which was a country in many ways much like Australia, spread out across actual time meridians, had begun to develop a proper system of standard time by about the mid-1880s. Sanford Fleming, who was a Scottish-born engineer, come to Canada and had been largely responsible for developing the Canadian Pacific Railway, had pioneered the development of standard time across Canada. And it was the contacts between Charles Todd and Sanford Fleming that really were, I think, crucial to developing the idea of standard time in Australia. 
Today, a second is defined in terms of uh, microwaves that are absorbed and emitted as cesium atoms move between two particular energy states. A second is defined as 9,192,631,770 oscillations of this particular frequency of microwave radiation. And we measure this with an atomic clock. Now, the atomic clock is a little bit of a misnomer because really the atoms are just a reference that we're using to make sure that the light that provides the actual tick of the clock, that that light is at exactly the right frequency for the atoms to absorb. But this is the basis for modern timekeeping. We've defined it in terms of so many oscillations of this particular frequency of light. All areas of science have been under scrutiny or attack for years now. So is there hope that Australia will continue in Charles Todd's entrepreneurial scientific footsteps? Mac Benoy. Todd worked from a desk. He was an entrepreneurial public servant. And I think really when you look at any of the economic and technological developments that are happening in any state, a lot of it is being driven by public servants. We don't see them, but they're there. They're there working day to day, just as Charles Todd did. So yes, I have great hope. We have to put a lot of faith, not necessarily in the politicians, but in the public servants, which are making it work day to day. And I think that's who Todd was in his final analysis. A great accolade, yes, a public servant. And that portrait of Charles Todd was by Sharon Carlton, with lots of assistance from Paul Davis, Pauline Newman, and of course, David Fisher. Next time on The Science Show, another superhero, now 200 years old, a priest, one who is very fond of peas, and someone we all studied if we did anything with genetics at school. The Amazing Life of Gregor Mendel, recorded by Pauline Newman in Brno, in what is now the Czech Republic. I'm Robin Williams. ABC Radio Station live and on the go. Discover new podcasts, music and audiobooks, all free on the ABC Listen app.